Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual and spirited community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We're very glad you're here. If you're a first-time visitor with us, please um, ask any questions you might have about this congregation or about this faith to the knowledgeable people at the visitor table, and they'll do their best to answer your questions. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in every person. It is in the spirit of that heritage that I say, let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Will you say with me the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith? In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. These words are by Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer. When I am in the woods with my students, teaching them the gifts of plants and how to call them by name, I try to be mindful of my language, to be bilingual between the lexicon of science and the grammar of animacy. Although they still have to learn the scientific roles and Latin names, I hope I'm also teaching them to know the world as a neighborhood of non-human residents. To know that, as eco-theologian Thomas Berry has written, we must say of the universe that it is a communion of subjects, not a collection of objects. When we gather together for worship on Sundays or when we gather all other days of the week as a congregation, there are people in the room, whichever room it is, with beliefs and practices from many of the major world religions, including neo-paganism, including atheism, So what holds us together? What keeps us moving forward together? One of the things is our mission. We wrote it ourselves and we wrote it on the wall. We say it every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. The reading for today is also by Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer. One afternoon, I sat with my field ecology students by a creek and shared this idea of animate language. One young man, Andy, splashing his feet in the clear water, asked the big question. Wait a second, he said as he wrapped his mind around this linguistic distinction. Doesn't this mean that speaking English, thinking in English, somehow gives us permission to disrespect nature? by denying everyone else the right to be persons? Wouldn't things be different if nothing was an it? This is the time in our service where we breathe deeply together, where we enter an attitude of meditation and prayer, or just quiet. All the religions of the world say that it is in this still place where we meet the divine or where we get wisdom, clarity, change of perspective. 
Let us enter what Ralph Waldo Emerson called the wise silence together, understanding that in this congregation, tiny noises from tiny children and noises of life count as part of the silence. I've been having a wonderful time reading a book called Braiding Sweetgrass that one of y'all recommended to me. It's essays by um, a professor of botany and ecology at the forestry school at New York State University. Her name is Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer. She's of Native American heritage, and um, her family's nation is the Potawatomi Nation, originally from up around the Great Lakes, but then removed to Kansas and then again to Oklahoma. And uh, her family had lost a lot of the connection to the teachings of the Potawatomi culture, um, retained little fragments of it. And she went to college and then got her PhD. And she and her sister started researching and learning and going to the powwows and taking classes. Um, apparently, there were, about, there were about nine native speakers of the Potawatomi language, which is an uh, Algonquin language, um, left. And so she tr- started trying to learn that language. And, uh, and I, I have to read the book a little at a time because my brain just catches fire, and then I have to put it down. Have you ever read a book like that, and you just have to read it in tiny little chunks? And I thought I would talk to you about it today because this is my last Sunday with you before I go on my vacation and study leave. And while I'm away, I always miss you guys, and I try not to worry about you. And um, and I know that this congregation is getting stronger and stronger as a community and stronger and stronger in its um, identity and a sense of mission and its dedication to hospitality and welcome. And one essay about pecan trees really made me think about community. She starts off this essay talking about a family story of her great-grandfather when he was a boy. He and a friend were trying to catch some fish for dinner to bring home to their moms. And there had been a drought. There wasn't much water in the stream. There weren't any fish. And... They um, started home in, in, the, in the dusk and started tripping over these big green balls in the grass. There were pecans that, you know, they have a brown husk and then a green husk that goes over that. Anyway, um, they couldn't figure out how to carry them home. There were so many of them, and they could only fit this many into their fists and in their pockets. And so the story goes that their mom saw them running through the dusk toward home, and they just saw these flashes of white, and the white was their underwear. Because what they had figured out was they took off their pants and tied the ankles together with the rope belt, and then they stuffed the pants full of pecans and carried them home, so they had quite a haul. And she said her great-grandfather might smile to know that they didn't remember him as a decorated World War I veteran. They didn't remember him as a very gifted mechanic. Um, they remembered him as this little boy in his underwear running home <laughs> with pecans. And she talks about how um, nuts are 
designed to be brought inside and eaten later. The, the word for nut in, in the Algonquin languages is pigan. And so we use that word still to talk about pecans and, or pecans, depending on where you're from. And um, she said berries and fruits are, have delicate skins and they've got a lot of sugar right away and you can eat them quickly and you have to eat them before they spoil. And so they're perfect right now food. And if you're a squirrel, you can eat some berries quickly and you're not hanging around outside where the hawk can get you. And you don't want to take a a nut and try to get to it right then in the summertime because it's going to take you too long and the hawk's going to see you and go, hey, dinner. So you, a nut is something that you are, that is designed for you to bring home for later. It's a nice burst of calories for you in the wintertime when you have plenty of time away from the hawks. You don't have to go out and be vulnerable. And one of the things that she said about pecan trees in the wild is something I never knew, which is that they don't bear fruit every year. The fruit is the nuts, of course. They don't bear nuts every year. They, uh, they just bear occasionally. When they've saved up enough sugar in the form of starch in their roots to create a bumper crop of pecans. And they don't fruit solo. You would think that, you know, each tree, if it were on its own schedule of building up enough starch, saving up, you know, for a nice vacation or whatever, a nice save up of starch and sugars in the roots, and then you're going to fruit all over the place. Nobody goes, la, solo. And fruits, they all fruit at the same time. How does that happen? Because some of them are better situated than the others. Some of them are in the sun, and some of them are in the shade. And they don't, they don't have access to as much resources in order to fruit. How do they do it all at the same time? This is called mast fruiting, M-A-S-T, mast fruiting. So I hope those of you who are scientists will forgive Uh, my way of describing the science in this. I'm not a scientist. I'm just a Unitarian minister who has been reading scientists and going, oh my goodness. So that's what you're getting. So mast fruiting is when everybody waits until everybody's got enough starch and then they all fruit together. Um, One of the things that they're finding out is that the trees help each other or something. <laughs> they don't know how it works. Maybe there's tree communication of some kind uh, through the air, maybe with the pollen, maybe it's pheromones, maybe it's underground, maybe through the roots. Nobody's quite sure. But what they're starting to think is that uh, there are these uh, there's this fungus that attaches to the roots. And the fungus is in a symbiotic relationship with the roots in that it it uh, gathers nutrients and moisture from the soil and delivers to the roots in exchange for carbohydrates from the roots. So they're helping each other. Win-win. And it's possible that this fungus is kind of interlaced and intertwined all through under the forest floor and that that's how... The communication happens 
among the trees. A lot of plants do this. They communicate. For example, um, if you have a, a group of plants in a, in a lab, which is where they study these, and you get one of them being attacked by a pest, that one will send out a chemical distress signal to the others who will pick it up and then start beefing up their own uh, chemical defenses against this pest. And they've done the experiment where they, where they collar the roots of some of the plants and don't let them have the fungus connection to the other roots. And those plants don't get the signal. So they think it's through the, the fungus communication uh, network. They, they call it the wood wide web. <laughs> <laughs> And it depends on your point of view how you describe what's happening. And you can tell a lot about the people who are writing about it by how they write about it. So here's an example. Uh, One person writes about it and says, The fungus is like Robin Hood, and it steals from the rich plants and gives to the poor plants. It steals from the plants in the sun and gives to the plants in the shade. And other people write about it and say these trees are sharing with one another as if they were community. I know which one I prefer. And um, the Potawatomi elder, she says, um, described it as sharing and communication amongst the trees. Not sharing because of, oh, look, my poor brother is in the shade. I'm going to share. No, because it's better for me and my DNA's uh, chances in the future if we all fruit together because then... There are so many pecans that we overwhelm the predators. We overwhelm the squirrels and the little boys. And so the squirrels can take as much as they can back to their dens. And the little boys can stuff their jeans as many times as they can. And we'll still have enough nuts so that more pecan trees are planted, are started. Does that make sense? And she says something that's so wonderful. She says, um, all flourishing is mutual. We flourish together when we're in a community. I love the metaphor. I'm not sure how it applies to every single situation or whether it does, but this is what this is for, starting to think about things. All flourishing is mutual. We make an error when we separate the good of one from the health of the whole. You can't be really good in your mansion with your beautiful garden if um, other people are not flourishing as well. It's, you can be rich or you can be healthy, but you can't really be in good community. You can't unless other people are flourishing as well. And then, of course, uh, they mutually flourish with the squirrels and the humans Because if there are lots of nuts, then the squirrels get fat, and then the humans eat the squirrels in the wintertime, and then they um, have enough to eat. And when the squirrel population um, gets thinned out when the nuts are not available, there are fewer squirrels, and the humans go other places to get their food. Then the pecan trees can fruit again, and then again, there's more than enough for everybody. Whereas if they fruited like that all the time, then there'd be so many squirrels that there would never be too many nuts. 
This is very intelligent how they work it out. I'm not saying the design is intelligent. I'm just saying the trees might be intelligent. <laughs> she also talks in another essay about the three sisters, and you all know who those are, the corn, the beans, and the squash. And you plant the three sisters together, and they have an amazing relationship. The corn, she talks about the skin on the seed of the corn being very thin, so as soon as you plop it in the moist earth... It starts to suck in moisture and make stuff, and it goes for height as its first priority. So the corn starts shooting up. Now the bean starts a little more slowly. It starts with its two little leaves, and its priority is making more leaves. So the bean makes leaves and makes leaves and makes leaves while the corn is going. And then the bean has this string that comes out the top, and you've seen it on YouTube in in fast motion. Uh, What do you call that? Time-lapse photography. And you can see the little thread. It's got a mission. It's on a mission. And it goes like this and dances around and around and around and around and around until it touches something. And then it goes up the corn. And if it hit the corn earlier, then the corn wouldn't be able to support it. But it uh, hits the corn at just the right time if you plant them all together. And then the squash is the slowest sister. And it gets started with leaves, and its leaves are broad, and it spreads. And so it shades the roots of the other plants, and so the weeds don't compete because they can't get any sunlight. And even underground, they're they're cooperating. They're not competing. Underground, the root system of the corn is like a skinny mop head that goes down. And then the bean has a tap root that goes farther down. So the water comes here, it comes by the corn roots, and then it goes to the bean roots. And the squash roots, what do they do? They go out like this. So they're bringing nurture to themselves from other places. And even um, in your belly, they cooperate. You can't really live on beans, although many of us have tried. And you can't. You can't live on corn, but corn and beans together, you're doing pretty well. And then you add squash to that with the keratin in it, and it's um, a pretty good diet, all three of the sisters together. So they cooperate. Do they cooperate? Is it just the way things are? (laughs) Is it anthropomorphizing to say that plants communicate and cooperate? Well, I think in English we would say, yeah, it's anthropomorphizing because Um, we think that humans are the sentient beings. That's mostly our point of view. And um, we are just now starting to think that maybe the primates are sentient as well in a way, that they cooperate, they communicate. We watch on YouTube the little video of Uh, Jane Goodall releasing the chimp into the wild, and the chimp comes back and gives her a hug and then goes. And you think, oh, my goodness, that's so (laughs) human-like. Because that's our point of view, that humans are the the top of creation, and we are the sentient beings, and anything that's uh, sentient is like us, and therefore we anthropomorphize it. But what if, just what if we switched our point of view just a tiny bit to imagine the language of animacy that she talks about. What if everything was alive? Again, back to the Ojibwe language, she says, 
They have a whole different grammar, whole different conjugations for things which are alive and things which are not alive. Things which are not alive are like plastic things. Things which are alive are the two-legged beings, the four-legged beings, the tree people, the rock people. These are alive things, the water, the air, the fire. And she says, she's thrown the book around across the room a number of times because there's just, she cannot wrap her mind around uh, Saturday being a verb. In this language, you can Saturday. I know what that means. You know what that means. We've all known what it's like to Saturday. For me, it means sermon writing, but for you, it probably means something else. <laughs> she talks about a... Uh, to be a bay is one verb. To be a bay. This water is being a bay right now. As if the water had chosen to shelter between the two stony points of land. Temporarily. It could be a wave. It could be a bay. It's true. It's never the same water. Maybe the water's alive. There's a horror in us. When we hear someone call a human being it, there's a repulsion. You would never say about your grandmother making biscuits at the stove. It's making biscuits at the stove. No, number one, your grandmother would take the wooden spoon and go bop on your head. (laughs) Your mother would cry and your daddy would yell, whatever. It's just not done. It kind of means you're a serial killer. (laughs) I watch the shows. So to someone who speaks the language of animacy, to say this fly that's driving me crazy in my bathroom is an it would be as shocking. I don't care. This fly has sentience. This fly has outsmarted me for five days. (laughs) It stays in the bathroom just bouncing around because it's smart enough to have random motion I'm not going to spray it with anything, but I'm trying to hit it with a, with a what is it, prevention magazine. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it is a fault of our language that we can use the word it for so many things. Maybe if we recognize them as a being, even saying him or her is kind of an artificial gendered uh, forcing of things into uh, categories which don't really carry that much information. But just to say, this being is a a you. And so if you have a a gnat that gets into your glass of water, you go, who are you? Who is this in my glass of water? It's just a different way of thinking about the world. And there's wisdom in changing your point of view. It's interesting to notice that your language has certain structural limitations. And most of y'all who have learned other languages find that you can think about things in a little bit of different way now that you're speaking English instead of your native tongue or now that you're speaking someone else's native tongue instead of your native English. You can think about things or find yourself thinking about things differently or find yourself frustrated that there's not a word for this thing that you are used to having a word for. Game theory says that 
we think in certain patterns and that you're always likely to think of the same solutions to problems. You're thinking in your own patterns to these solutions to problems. And so when you have something that knocks your thinking out of its normal pattern, this is a good thing. And sometimes a metaphor like this is sacred in that it enlivens our brain and makes us think about things in another way. So how about this summer if we think of this congregation as a grove of pecan trees? And what would mast fruiting mean for us? It might mean that we uh, that we share our sugar, whatever that is, our ideas or our wealth or our um, energy or whatever it is. And I'm sure that it's different all the time. And that we bear fruit. Maybe together we flourish together. Maybe we don't bear fruit regularly. Maybe our energy goes up and down as we save it up and then we go pow. And then we get quiet again and then we go pow. I don't know. I'm using the metaphor to think about our congregation's community. I don't have the answers. I want you to start thinking. I know you're all thinking about Martin Buber right now. (laughs) The Jewish theologian who said, we should have an I-thou relationship with all things rather than an I-it relationship, that the whole planet would be better if we had an I-thou relationship. And I wonder what it would be like to have a truth that you want to communicate to the planet, but you don't have words, you don't have an ability to say the words. How would you communicate your truth? Maybe you would be like the squash and just make your leaves broad and shade other people. You communicate your truth, dancing it, being it, showing it. What truth are you communicating and how would you do it if you were a tree? I hope people would listen to you. Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.